Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Timing is everything, and we are extremely fortunate to have with us on the eve of the Singapore summit Admiral Jim Stavridis. A graduate of the Naval Academy, his military career spanning nearly four decades, including appointments as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, Commander of the U.S. Southern Command in Miami, Senior Military Assistant to the Secretary of Navy and the Secretary of Defense, and leader of the Navy's premier operational think tank for innovation, Deep Blue, which was formed immediately after the 9-11 attacks. An author of eight books, he's in Dallas today to speak about his most recent book, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans, and it's now available in paperback. Until just a few days ago, he was dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a position he has held for the last five years. Welcome. Thank you, Jim. Good to be back in uh, Dallas. So before we dive into Korea and what's on everybody's mind, what's next for you? Um, I have taken a position at the Carlyle Group, which is an international private equity firm, one of the two or three largest in the world. Well known in this city, lots of oil. As I'm sure it would be. And I've always been fascinated by international finance and particularly by private equity. I think it's an extraordinary model. And uh, having done this long career in the Navy and then a second act in higher education, I was ready for a third act and something completely different. So I'm off to Carlisle starting in August. Well, wishing you all success. We're lucky to have you. Thank you. So in just a few hours, uh, Kim Jong-un and President Trump will sit across the table from one another. And unlike most summits where there's a fairly clear roadmap, no doubt you've worked on many of them, uh, this doesn't seem to be the case here. Can you sketch out for us what are the possible outcomes and, and even their impact? I would say the odds are very high that this will turn out to be a positive event uh, for several reasons. First of all, these are two leaders who both have a very vested interest in a positive outcome. It's to no one's benefit for this thing to really crater and for either President Trump or Supreme Leader Kim to leap up from the table and run away. These two individuals are like two moths drawn to a flame of international publicity and affection. And I think they will both work hard to have a nice experience. Uh, so I think it is highly likely that there'll be smiles for all my friends as we conclude. What I don't think will happen, Jim, is I don't think we're gonna slap the table and create an agreement and hand out Nobel Prizes in eight months. This will be the work of years. It's gonna require patient diplomacy. That's not something this administration has demonstrated the ability yet to do. But I'll tell you who I have a lot of faith in, uh, who's relatively new on the scene, and that is Secretary of State Pompeo. He strikes me, and I've spoken with him several times, know him through a previous connection in the military. He strikes me as a very solid, grounded individual who I think gives this all a 70% chance of landing diplomatically. Let's hope so. Do you think there may be an exchange of interest sections or something like that? I think there'll be uh, probably a declaration to conclude the formal war that exists. Mm -hmm. I think there will be uh, probably not embassies set up, but I think intersections would be a good guess. I think that above all, there'll be some kind of a comment out of the North saying that they do believe that they need to have complete, verifiable, 
indisputable, irreversible uh, end to nuclear weapons on the peninsula. The quid pro quo will be the United States saying that they have absolutely no design on regime change. And I think if we get those two statements and we get a roadmap and then we put the professionals at the table, the Mike Pompeos, I think we got a shot, again, a 70% chance over a couple of years of defusing this diplomatically. Now, a country that won't be at the table but will certainly be thought about is that China. And China's long game for the Singapore summit is the title of an op-ed that you wrote that was just published today in the Korea Herald. <laughs> and I was particularly struck by your comment that China thinks 200 years ahead. Heck, we're lucky if we can think even to the next quarter. Yeah. Um, I always say in the Pentagon, we, we are so proud of ourselves when we come up with a five-year strategic plan. China is seeking to understand what East Asia looks like 150 years from now. That is a absolute ethos in Chinese thinking and strategic planning. So we've got to do better at playing the long game. China, another way to put this is China is playing the ancient game of Go, which is incredibly complicated compared to either checkers, very simple, chess, mildly complicated, Go, much, much more complex, more moves that can be made, a more complex game board. Um, that's how we need to think because that's how China's thinking. On this particular issue, in my view, all roads to Pyongyang lead through Beijing. We're not going to solve this until and unless we can get to four-party talks, U.S., China, South Korea, and North Korea. Now, another country that's been a thorn in our side is Iran. And I didn't mention this earlier, but you're also a commentator or a contributor, rather, to MSNBC. I'm the chief international analyst for NBC News, yes. And, and I watched one of your interviews where you talked about uh, Iran's hegemonic objectives. Was pulling out of the JCPOA the Iran deal? Are you in agreement with that strategy? I am not. I think we should have stayed in it. I will say when the deal came out and I looked at it, I was uh, displeased with the deal. I don't think it was particularly well negotiated. I think we in the United States wanted the deal too much under the Obama administration. But by the time the Trump administration came in, it was past the point of a debate about a good deal or a bad deal. It was a done deal. It was working reasonably well within the constraints and failures of the deal. I would have left it in place gone to the Europeans, said, let's leave that deal in place, but let's stand together to create additional sanctions that go after Iranian bad behavior throughout the region, conventional behavior, mm -hmm. and also the Iranian ballistic missile program. By pulling out, we've driven a wedge in the transatlantic alliance, which we have exacerbated hideously over the last couple of days in Charlevoix, Canada. And so we see this alliance drifting apart that's bad for us. That's the fundamental reason we should have stayed in the deal, to keep the alliance together. And I want to talk with you about the alliance because this coming Saturday, uh, Ambassador Hutchison, K. Bailey Hutchison, mm -hmm. will be yep. speaking to good our Good friend. Members. A good friend. And, in fact, uh, if for the Texans in the crowd, if you go to Austin, Texas, and you go to Ironworks Barbecue, my yeah. favorite, you will see okay. K. Bailey Hutchison's <laughs> picture and her letter right next to mine as the <laughs> Navy commander. So funny world that she ends up as the NATO ambassador, and I'm a former commander Strong of NATO. She's a good friend of mine. And as she was preparing uh, for her role as NATO ambassador, we oh, had a couple of chats. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to hearing what she has to say. And Anne Applebaum, I'm sure you read, had an interesting piece well. post a few days ago 
where she covered a NATO exercise in Poland, and she, the title was NATO is again practicing for the worst. Given what happened this past weekend in Canada, where do we stand with the alliance? And I guess the way to approach this question is what ha is happening politically with rhetoric? Is that moving into the military area or the military alliance? Is the military alliance still as strong as it was? Well, I'm going to start by uh, channeling Lord Palmerston, former British Prime Minister, 19th century, who said that great nations have no permanent allies, only permanent interests. But here's the point. It is in the absolute permanent interest of the United States to have the closest possible relationships across the transatlantic because we share a value set, because of the importance of the European geography on the western side of the Asian continent, and because the Europeans are the best pool of partners for us in the world. So the bad news is there are stresses and fractures that I can see appearing in that transatlantic bridge. The good news is it's 70 years old, and I think it will outlast the I hope, momentary stresses that I see upon it at the moment. And speaking about stresses, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not U.S., about U.S. preparedness. Mm -hmm. Is What does the Navy need now? Are we losing, mm -hmm. um, say, vis-a-vis -vis Russia or China? Um, I think it's fair to say not that the U.S. Navy is in decline, but that we're seeing a resurgence of the Russian Navy, and we're seeing for the first time since the 1400s, a very strong Chinese Navy. Um, those two together will present real great power challenges on the oceans of the world. So we've got to up our game in the U.S. Navy. To answer this specific question, almost any analyst, Jim, will tell you that we need about 350 frontline warships in the U.S. Navy. We've got about 280. So we do have a shortfall. This is something I commend the Trump administration for doing, which is committing to building this fleet of a sufficient size to encompass the global responsibilities we face. And I don't want to let you go without really talking a bit about your, about your sure. book. And um, our book club at the Council recently read Tim Marshall's bestseller, Prisoners of Geography. Mm. And he, like you, spoke about the importance of the Arctic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's at stake there and what, what, what moves should we make? Um, the Arctic is incredibly valuable for three key reasons. First is geography. Here you have um, five NATO nations across the Arctic Sea from the uh, Russia. So there's a strong geopolitical component Secondly, it's the hydrocarbons, it's the resources in the region, it's the fishing stocks. Um, it's an incredibly rich and relatively unexploited area of the globe. And thirdly, it's the environment. Um, we, of course, are seeing global warming, we're seeing the ice cracking. Um, if we don't collectively work on those challenges, we'll have significant environmental problems that might dwarf the economic and military challenges we face there. So it's kind of a three-ring circus of importance, military, economic, and above all, in my view, the environment. We've got to get it right. Here's the good news. We've never fought a war in the Arctic Ocean. Here's the bad news. The tension is rising up there as that ice opens up and there is more space for competition. So the United States has to take a lead in 
bringing the Arctic Council to a good, solid landing point. It includes Russia. It's one of the few areas and fora where we can have a sensible discussion. I would argue the Arctic could be a real zone of diplomacy if we approach it and as how such. And get politicians to realize the impact of climate change? Well, we do um, a number of things. First, exactly what I'm doing right now. We try and put together fora. I know this is something that World Affairs Council does all over the country. We bring informed citizens together and we talk about these challenges. Secondly, we look with clear eyes at the science of what's going on with an open mind. Um, I have done so. I'm convinced global warming is real. I think we know the reasons for it. I think it is reversible. But let's have the debate. And thirdly, in our institutions of higher education, we need to do more focus on this. Places like the Fletcher School at Tufts University, but I would argue also in our high schools. We need to bring young people into this particular zone of intellectual engagement better than we have thus far. Now, is it, and as we close, is it accurate that you were vetted to be a potential VP? Mm -hmm. So that meant that you agreed to go through that process? I did. I didn't agree to go through it. I went through it. And it was, uh, if anyone ever asks you if you want to be vetted for vice president, my advice is get in your car and drive as fast as you can in the other direction. It's a very thorough process, at least on the Democratic side. Um, so I was vetted for vice president. I was one of six people who were. Obviously, she chose Senator Tim Kaine, good guy, I like him. Um, on the other hand, after the election, I was asked by Donald Trump to come to Trump Tower. I spent over an hour with him, interviewed as Secretary of State and Director of National Intelligence. I kind of think of both those events as two bullets whizzing by my head, and I'm very happy that I am well, not I mean, you got your feet wet. Do you want to take the plunge? Or? <laughs> I would never categorically rule out the possibility of serving again in the government. At the moment, I'm quite happy as a private citizen. So how do you feel about the fact that in the Trump administration there's so many retired or active military serving in, in, in I think position. there are probably a few too many, uh, and I think that um, we've had a long and strong tradition of civilian control of the military in this country. I don't think it's a constitutional crisis, but I think for the long-term health of the republic, I'd rather see a little less military influence in a variety of jobs. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us on Global IQ Minute. The book, Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. And, of course, we can watch you on MSNBC, and columns appear all the time. Indeed. Thanks, again for being with Thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.